Well, good morning and welcome back. I have two places for you to open your Bible. I want to tell you the story of a song, and then I want to show you the song. We begin in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bible, and for those of you at home, please grab your electronic device or your paper Bible. I'm a paper Bible guy myself most of the time, and whether you turn your Bible on or open your Bible, please look in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Psalms are the songbook of Israel. And like any good songbook, because it chronicles all of Israel's life and all of Israel's experiences, the songs come in all colors and in every key. Some are written in a major key and burst with joy and energy. Some are sad and dark and written in a minor key. That's why the Psalms draw us and call to us in times of trouble and sometimes why we seek them in the moments of our greatest joy in a way that prose and speeches never can. The Psalms capture emotions. That is the power of songs. That's why couples in love for many years still speak of our song. And that's why a song that you heard for the last time 20 years ago, if it suddenly comes on the radio or Spotify suddenly feeds it to you, can draw you right back to emotions and memories that you thought you had long forgotten and you would never relive. 1 Samuel 17 begins to tell us the real strength of King David. Israel is suffering under the leadership of what is going to turn out to be a bad king. Israel has chosen for themselves a king, and they have chosen the kind of man they think they want. They have chosen Saul, a man most notable for his height. He was head and shoulders above the rest of Israel, and frankly, that's all he had really to recommend him. With a few, very few bright exceptions, his entire life and career as king were a disappointment. And that's really in sharp contrast in 1 Samuel 17 because Israel is once again facing their perennial enemy, the Philistines, across a place you can visit today in Israel, a little valley where men who were determined to fight could see each other and smell each other's sweat as they stood in very close proximity on either side of a little valley. It wouldn't take very long at all to run across and join in fatal combat. And the Philistines have chosen not to rush Israel, but to send them out a champion, a man you know as Goliath. That name alone represents something gigantic and something fearsome, but the real Goliath strode forward every day and with blasphemies and curses taunted Israel by the names of his gods and asked someone from Israel to step out and meet him in a fight of champions. And it was a little embarrassing because clearly the Philistines had sent their tallest man and the tallest man in Israel happens to be the king and the king is nowhere to be found. David shows up on the battlefield not as a warrior but as an errand boy. His father has literally sent him to take his brothers on the line, the back line, but the line nonetheless, lunch. And he's basically taking them cheese sandwiches, and to Goliath's eternal misfortune, while David is delivering the grub, he hears Goliath taunt God 
and taunt his people, Israel. And he asks a very natural question for a man that has faith. He says, isn't anybody going to do anything about this? And his brothers say, shut up, you're just a kid. You know nothing of war. David says, I, I don't care. God's name is getting stepped on. I'll do something if no one else will. And Saul, in a further act of cowardice, offers David famously Saul's own armor. And David staggers around a little bit with it and says, I, I can't do anything with this. This isn't what I do. And he uses an old shepherd's weapon. He takes a sling. He goes down to the river. He selects a handful of stones. And in the name of God, he goes out to meet the giant. And you know the rest of the story. It's all here in 1 Samuel 17. In one swift shot, it was over. And Goliath is beheaded, and now the cowards find their strength and chase the Philistines all the way home, killing them all the way. Well, the people loved it. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 18 now. David is going to go on to write many songs for Israel, but on this day he had a song written about him. 1 Samuel 18 verse 6 says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. How do you think Saul received that? Well, the next verse tells you Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. I guess so. The women are literally celebrating with song and dance, saying, Saul, pretty good guy, but have you met David? Saul's done a couple things, but if you have a giant in your life, if there's a giant in the valley, you want the shepherd. You want Jesse's boy to go out and fight for you. And Saul, again, burns with cowardly rage against his own servant who has served him well in the past and rescued the honor of his nation now. And Saul begins to pursue David, not to harass him, but to kill him. And David has to run for his life. He gets so desperate, he eats the holy bread. He gets so desperate, he's using borrowed weapons. He's relying on information from Saul's own son, Jonathan, to save his life. And we come to 1 Samuel 21. Now you're going to read the backstory for the psalm I'm going to share with you. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And those names may not immediately strike a chord for you, but some of you know the Bible on this level of detail, but I'll just give all of you a guess, and I think you'll probably get it. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish. We don't know if that's a title or a name, but we know that that man is the king of Gath. Anybody care to guess where Gath is? enemy territory. Guess where David ran into? The Philistine territory. Getting the picture? David is so desperate that he, is run, he has run for his life from his home and his nation, and there's nothing waiting for David in Philistine territory. 
He just killed their champion because of his singular act of courage. A whole army rose up and pursued these same men. But a man does what he has to do to survive. So David runs into enemy territory and finds himself in the presence of the king of this Philistine city. And he's notorious. He's notorious there. Verse 11 says, The servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, that song was pretty cool when they're singing about it in your hometown, but when you're in enemy territory and the tens thousands you've struck down are the brothers and the fathers of the people you're surrounded by, now you're in trouble. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. In just a moment, I'm going to read to you a psalm of lament that ends with trust and confidence. And I need you to see the backstory. Sometimes people puzzle over the meaning of songs and why the band or why the singer-songwriter wrote this particular thing. If someone's really bummed out and they sing a song of heartbreak, they try to figure out if that person dated a lot, which girl or which guy was the one that caused all this sadness. The most California of all songs, Hotel California, people have raged for years about what that song might be about. And then somebody decided to ask the band, and the band told them, don't look it up right now, stay with this story and with this song. This is David's experience. Behind him is a king from his own country that he has served and defended who wants him dead. Saul would gladly stand over David with his sword wet with David's blood. And not in front of him anymore, but all around him with their hands literally on him are enemy soldiers saying to their king, hey, this is the guy they wrote the song about that killed thousands of us. What do you think the Philistines wanted to do to David at that moment? David has run from one trouble into another, and he does something desperate and something humiliating to save his life. Look in verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. You get in the picture? See, this is humiliating for any man. It would be especially humiliating for a warrior in an ancient honor-bound culture where death is literally better than dishonor. This tells me how afraid David was. He acts like a madman, not a child, but a madman. He acts like someone who is no longer in touch with reality, who doesn't know who he is, where he is, or what he's doing. He lets his own drool, which he produces on purpose, he lets his drool run down his beard, and he scratches at the doors of the gates like a madman to portray to men who will kill him in an instant if they have one more ounce of motivation. Nothing to worry about here. If I am that guy, I'm not a danger anymore. The stress of combat broke me. I'm just someone who's out of his mind. Don't worry about me. And it worked. And I want you to hear the king and hear the impatience of an ancient king get on his staff. 
Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Check this out. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Can you hear the kingly impatience there? Another crazy guy? Don't I have enough of those on my staff? What's wrong with you guys? You bring me this helpless, sad, broken man, what am I supposed to do? Take him home? And it works. And David, the psalmist of Israel, who's going to be their warrior king soon enough, who's already been chosen by God to be their king, but for now has to run for his life, leaves enemy territory alive but embarrassed. He must have been very embarrassed because he's felt his bowels quake with fear. The hands of those men on his shoulders have filled him with mortal dread. And as much as David loves God, he's been terribly afraid, and that's why he wrote a song about it. And I'm glad it's in the Bible, because maybe you've been afraid in these days too. I have. I've been afraid and nervous and anxious for all kinds of reasons, for all kinds of different people, including my family, myself, my work, my church, my parents in Mexico. If I let my mind run, I can sit down and write out a list of a hundred reasons to worry. Anybody else able to do that? Some of you are professionals. Some of you are ninja warriors. You can come up to a thousand. Let me teach you a song instead that'll help. Look in Psalm 56, please. And I want you to notice the title. In Psalm 56, the strange words at the top of the psalm are actually part of the Hebrew Bible. And it tells you the backstory. All of that was the backstory to this psalm, which I'm briefly going to explain to you. David writing this psalm gives direction for it musically. He says, Psalm 56, it's to the choir master. In other words, this is to be sung by Israel. David is reflecting on his experience. This song came out of the crucible of David's experience, but he's going to teach it not only to himself, but to the nation. It says, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, and everybody said, what? What is that? Well, that's the name of a melody. It's lost to us, but David says, I've taken one of our old familiar tunes, and I've put new words to it. You already know the melody. Here's some new words. A mictum, and we, that's not translated because even now scholars aren't sure what it means. It's probably a musical term. A mictum of David, and here's what made him so afraid, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Listen to how fear works. Listen to how anxiety works. And watch David sing his way through it. You'll learn something from it. David sang and prayed to the Lord, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Look down in verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. And every other major translation except this one says something that I frankly prefer. The New American Standard and the NIV, for instance, say something like this. All day long they twist my words. You ever had your words twisted? Isn't it painful? One sentence or a paragraph 
or a moment twisted can make you look like the monster, make you look like the villain. It's one of the reasons that we're gripped by fear and anxiety across our country. Many people are twisting the words of others. Who's doing that? Everybody's doing it on all sides. They're ascribing the worst of all possible motives, taking a 15-second soundbite, pulling it out of context, and saying, these are our enemies. It's painful. David's lived through it. Both the Philistines and the people with Saul have pursued him, have injured his cause, twisted his words. So he says, all day long they injure my cause or twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. And David, in his fear, which is always followed by anger, eventually says, God, step in. They're after me. They're hurting me. They're trampling me underfoot. They're twisting my words. God, please step forward and do justice. Now, I skipped around. You may have noticed, and I skipped around for a good reason. Because I want you to see that David, and this is the way poetry works, but more than that, this is the way fear and grief works. Go back to verse 1. I'll show you what I skipped. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker opposes me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now, doesn't that seem like a good place to end the psalm? Shouldn't this be much shorter? You've got two verses of lament. God, they're after me. And my pastor used to say, it's not paranoia if they're really after you. Sometimes they are. David says, I've got men behind me and men around me who want me dead. God, they're really after me. They trample on me all day long. But, verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I trust you, God, whose word I praise. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Why didn't the psalm end there? Why did he go on in verse 5 and 6 and 7 to express more fear and ask God to step forward with justice? Because that's the way fear works. It comes and goes. Maybe you've had the experience in these three months. You have a good day and you think to yourself, I think I've figured some stuff out. I think I know how to live through this. I'm doing really well. Then what happens the next day? Some other little tiny thing, they're out of grapes at Ralph's, and you're the person on the video just completely losing your mind because Ralph's and the supply chain have failed you, and life cannot go on without grapes. Those sad people who become famous in those videos, it's never about the grapes or whatever has finally pushed them over the edge. They've been carrying around great fears and thinking on their better days that it's over, and it's not. David poetically is portraying the way we always move through grief, the, all we, the way we always move through fear. Fear, when it has you in its grip, says that it will never be better, that this is the end. And on better days, you may lie to yourself and say that you will never be afraid again, and neither of those things are true. And David discovers 
that he is in, still in relationship with God with all these fears, and he is struggling to put his trust in him and moving back and forth. He's calling on God for justice, for God to do what is right. And then in verse 8, he stops calling for justice, and he becomes sad again. If, again, this would, be written, this would be written in a lot of different movements if we were putting it to actual music. Verse 8 gets slow and sad. Look, you have kept count of my tossings or wanderings. And thinking about that phrase has brought me a lot of comfort in these hard days because there are nights that I've had trouble sleeping too. And I'm remembering that a man in greater danger than I, David, once tossed on his bed looking in vain for sleep. And when David couldn't sleep, he remembered something about God. God is keeping track of every turn in the bed. This is also translated, you have kept count of my wanderings. Sometimes when we're very afraid and very stricken with fear, and sometimes fear comes out as anger, this is the way we move. We go from one direction to another, changing our mind about 12 times in the course of two days, but maybe that's just me. Maybe you've all been steady and moving in a straight line through this. Anybody with me? No, hardly anybody I know. I think we've all gotten better at faking it. But I think a lot of us understand and can take comfort when David says to God, you have kept count of my tossings. And here's another image and a better image. Do a king's work because the, word, the king is too cowardly to do so, and you have to take a shepherd's sling and a few rocks to face a mountain of a man who's been a warrior since childhood, even then? Yes, even then. My God is for me. And that might seem to you the most obvious thing. I think for generations of people, this simple message, which is at the heart of the psalm, that God is for us so we won't be afraid, for generations that message was seemed too good to be true. Maybe not so much for Americans because we've created an, a culture and a machine of marketing that says that we as individuals, each one of us, is simply the most important person in the entire world. And you can have it your way, and it's an iPhone, not a Wii phone, and certainly not a U phone, it's an iPhone. And yes, I, stand for in, I know it stands for internet. Don't send me an email like someone did the last time I made that joke. We're set culturally in our hearts the way culture and sin has misshapen, not all, but many people in the West, we think to ourselves, well, of course God is for me. I'm awesome. Why wouldn't He get in on this? And none of that is true. I want you to recover the wonder of what it says in Scripture that God is for you because Scripture says that you failed God and defied Him and denied Him that God gave His holy law to you, the crown of His creation, but a creation nonetheless, with a very finite lifespan and a very small understanding of God and the world He placed you in, but that the God of the universe who creates everything by the simple word of His power, who says, let there be light, and for the first time ever, light exists. 
and water and food and vegetation and all the things that we take for granted. Who made that? We didn't make that. They didn't spring from nothing. God spoke them into existence. And that God, the King and Creator of everything that exists by His grace and faithfulness and goodness alone, He stands with you and says to you, I am for you. And David didn't know the half of it. Because David, because David lives a thousand years before Jesus was born, I'm convinced even though David is writing the Psalms that are messianic prophecies that speak of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, David is promising that Messiah is going to come, but I'm convinced that David could not begin to imagine the depth with which we would be loved that the Son of God would die for us because that's how much God took our sinful cause upon Himself. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul writes. And look with me, one more reference, and very important that you look at it with me in Romans chapter 8. A thousand years after David wrote, Saul is, Paul, rather the apostle, is going to write something that resembles a psalm himself. This is what God has done in Christ. That's why we can say with even greater confidence than David had that God is for us because we stand on this side of Calvary. We can look back in our worst fears when we think that God has abandoned us and no one is for us and certainly not God. We can look back at the cross of Jesus and remember that that's how we were loved. Romans 8 verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Whatever you're going through, it's in that list somewhere. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, Paul says there may come a time when our life is just as worthless to people as David's life was in the hands of the Philistines. We may be as helpless as sheep, but, Paul says, no, in all these things, even then, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, and here's the key, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if David could say in Psalm 56, verse 9, this I know that God is for me, we can say it much more. We can say it with greater confidence. We can sing it more loudly. But look, he's not done. Here's the conclusion of the psalm and the end of the message. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
Now David has perspective on the threat of men, no matter how powerful, no matter how strong their weapons. If God is for me, I won't be afraid. Since God is for me, I will not be afraid. But notice the last two verses or you'll miss the point of God being for you. David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Don't miss the last two verses. Every note in the psalm, in the psalm and in the song counts. What David is telling you is simply this. Since God is for me, I will not be afraid. Instead, I'll just keep obeying him. See, those last two verses are so important. David has escaped with his life, and he has a new perspective. That David has been spared these dangers because God loves him and because God is for him. And on the other side of calamity and fear and anxiety, David says, now I know, God, I must do what I promised. I must give these offerings of gratitude to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling. And the reason you delivered me, David says in the last two lines, is so that I may walk before God in the light of life. In other words, the point of you being spared and forgiven and loved and the reason that God is on your side in Christ is so that you can obey him. He didn't spare your life physically, and he won't spare your soul eternally so that you can do whatever you please. God does not declare himself on the side of everyone for any reason. No, he redeems and forgives those who, who have fallen into sin. He brings them, guilty sinners, back into his family. He spares us our life. He forgives us our sins. And then he says, now go obey me. The reason I have saved you, the reason I have spared you, the reason I have blessed you is so that you may walk before me in the light of life. In other words, so that you will obey him. So be of good cheer, Christian. No matter what your terrors and no matter what your fears, you don't need to be afraid. God is for you. Just please keep obeying him. I wonder if in all your fear and all your anxiety, you've given up on obeying God in a certain point. If you once had a vision for your life or you once made commitments or promises to God and you were promising and planning to do a certain thing with God and now all the fear and all the anxiety have taken your heart away and you've decided not to do those things. Please understand there's no reason for you to be afraid. God actually is for you eternally in Christ, so please don't be afraid. Instead, just obey Him. Let's pray together, shall we? For those of you who are in the room, little group of people in the room, and probably a much bigger audience online, let me just give you a moment to invite you to give your fears to God, whatever they may be. They may be physical, they may be financial, they may be spiritual. Understand, in Christ, through the sacrifice of His Son, God is, amazingly, for you. No one else can say that. 
No one else except those forgiven by God himself at his expense can say, the God I speak to is actually for me, so I don't need to be afraid. What can people do to me? I'll just keep walking with him. I'll just keep obeying him. And maybe this is the time for some of you in the room or online to finally give your life humbly to God and ask his forgiveness. If so, as in weeks past, I just want to invite you. Send us a text with the name of the Savior, with the name of Jesus, to this number, 714-868-7258. 714-868-7258. If you have a question about following Jesus or if you have decided to turn away from your sin and follow Jesus, send us a text with his name, the name Jesus, just that, to this number, 714-868-7258. Father, thank you. We give you now our fears. We confess them to you. We stand with David and say that we have been greatly afraid. But we want to put our confidence where he did, in you. We want to say that we have come through the dark night and we have seen you in it. And we have seen you on the other side of it. And we now understand that there's no reason to be afraid because you are not only with us, you are for us. And we will not be afraid because people can do nothing to us if you are with us and for us. So help us, Lord, get back to obeying you. If we have relinquished any bit of faith and love and hope and stopped obeying you in any respect because of our fears, forgive us and give us again a sweet walk with you in the light of the life that you have given in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.